Welcome to Ripstop on the Record, the podcast for makers, by makers, where we talk about all things MYOG. Brought to you by Ripstop by the Roll. I think it's good, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that was a good take. Hey everybody, welcome to Ripstop on the Record. I'm Jameson. I'm Carter. And I'm not Isaac. Today, we are going over the top 10 fabric terms that you need to know when being a maker, DIYer, cottage company, gear designer, whatever it is, so that you can be a more knowledgeable consumer. Yeah, one of the main goals of this recording is to give you some practical knowledge on how to go onto our website and plan your project and feel confident that you have the materials that will do it and serve you for many years to come. This is going to help you with things like fabric application. So you choose the right one for your project. This will help you understand what to look for in products that you might be buying. And when they say taffeta, what that might mean and, and things like that. So there's a lot of good stuff. Now, if you are a visual learner or you want to read stuff, this episode also has an accompanying blog that you can check out. So if you want to read the definitions that we go over later here, then you can check that out there. And then we'll also have some more graphics and content like that to follow up. Now, a few updates on new products. First, we are releasing a sewing machine this week. It just came out yesterday. Ripstop by the Roll is selling the Singer Heavy Duty 4411. Yeah, it's a really awesome machine. It's the one that we use in all of our instructional videos. And we wanted to be able to offer something that people could count on and that you could also use for years to come. So buy one of those. If you don't have one, it will put you through every single kit that we sell and beyond. I used that machine this morning. So other new products, uh, we were releasing a really cool fabric that we wanted to release last week, but it got delayed a bit. Shipping issues still exist. So it's getting pushed out to October 3rd, but keep an eye on our social media account and look out for this new super stretchy, super durable, wink, wink fabric that's coming out with a maybe a recycled twist. Can't tell you, you'll see soon. As always, if you wouldn't mind, comment, like, rate, subscribe, drop us a, a message if you like what we do, or if you hate it, let us know kindly. Get but no hate, no hate, right hatred now. allowed. It's the end of you and me. We're over. We've got a whole podcast to do. We can't be over yet. Oh no, that was for the people that hate us. Oh, got it. For everybody else, let us know. Hey everyone, we are here with another episode today talking about the top 10 fabric terms that you need to know. I'm joined today with Carter. I'm Isaac. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm Carter. All right. So as you heard, today we'll be going over the top 10 fabric terms that are really helpful to know when you're either selecting a fabric or designing gear or just making stuff at home. So we're going to go over all the definitions, common misconceptions, and how you can understand these things a little bit better. But first, uh, if you are more of a visual learner, you want to read stuff, then we do have a blog post that is titled the exact same thing as this episode. We will link that in the description and we're, you'll be able to read all of the descriptions and definitions that we talk about here. You can just read them in blog post form if that's something that you're into. Also, we have launched a new resource. You might have already seen it or, or, or interacted with it, depending on when this episode comes out, but it is called the Ripsionary. It is our fabric MYOG and maker dictionary glossary thing that you can check out on our website. There we have uh, written, well, Carter has written definitions for over like 120 terms, I think, um, that you often see on our website. Things like calendar, UHMWPE, what Avian is, things like that that you can read there and have a better understanding of how to interact with our products and fabrics. So if you want to learn more than just the top 10 terms, you can go check out the Riptionary. 
But in this episode, we'll just focus on the top 10. So, Carter, you ready to get into it? I will pretend to know what all of these things are, <laughs> and I'm down for it. I, I believe in you. All right, the number one thing that you need to know when you're looking at fabrics is what the weight means. So give us the uh, maybe the textbook definition of, of what the weight is. Yeah, so this one's a, a little bit different because obviously everybody knows what weight means. So it's not like that's the term that you need to know. But the idea that how most textiles are labeled is with the weight of the material in some way is a really important thing because a lot of people don't understand that um, uh, and or understand how the weight corresponds to the most likely characteristics that that fabric might have. So in the U.S., we use ounces per square yard, which means if you had a square yard, a 36 by 36 inch cut of that fabric, then it would weigh we put what it would weigh in ounces. So for instance, 1.6 ounce per square yard hyper D means that, a, or what is that? A 1296 cubic inch piece weighs approximately 1.6 ounces. And what you can glean from that typically is around how the fabric is going to be in terms of durability and things like that, right? So in our offerings, we have things that weigh about half an ounce per square yard all the way up to like 20. I don't know what uh, polyester CSM weighs, but it's a lot. Um, so yeah, you can see there, right? Like if you have membrane seven, which weighs in the half ounce per square yard range versus something like thousand D Cordura that might weigh 11 ounces per square yard, then you start to understand, okay, if the fabric's heavier, then it's most likely going to be more burly and strong. That's not always true because of some of the other terms we're going to get to uh, in terms of specialized fibers and other things like that. But in general, that's what you're looking for. First of all, you're basically spot on. Polyester CSM is 21 ounces per square yard. I was so close. <laughs> so good job there. Uh, common mistakes are people forgetting to title the weight. So what are some other weights that you could get mixed up with if you're maybe not from America? Uh, yeah. So, oh yeah, that was the other thing I was going to say. So internationally in places that use the correct uh, way of measuring things, uh, they use GSM or grams per square meter. Uh, and it's the same thing, right? You take a square meter, you weigh it in grams, and that's what you use to compare weights of fabrics. Uh, what you most often see is definitely people not realizing that it's per square yard. So they might weigh something per linear yard or vice versa, which is a big difference, right? So a linear yard in textiles is going to be the full width of the bolt of the fabric, which is normally around 60 inches, and then obviously a yard long. So if you weigh that, it's going to weigh heavier because there's more material there, and that can be a mix-up. Uh, I mean, it's happened to me before in, in product development and testing where I did the math wrong, and I'm like, what is 0.51 DCF weigh like <laughs> one and a half ounces or whatever? So I think that's the most common thing. Uh, other than just not understanding what you can get from knowing the weight. Uh, and sure. as we go over some of these other terms, I can expound on that more, but I don't want to bring up terms that we don't know about yet, you know? The other thing that's important to keep in mind is uh, if, depending on the fabric, it'll come fulfilled in a, maybe a half yard. If you for, if you purchase one, like one quantity on a website of 0.51 DCF, then you're going to get one half yard. So it's going to weigh less like if you're weighing it at home. So just to keep in mind that these are the weight of a 
one full half or one full yard square yard one full square yard not one full See, he's already yard. getting confused yeah. that's why it's important um that is not planned either <laughs> no but I mean, it, it definitely can happen right we do have people that reach out and they say that exact thing maybe they bought a half they bought a full yard and they're like hey you said one this is 1.6 ounces per yard uh why is this coming in at two and a half and you know we have a great customer service team and they explain it and then people understand but at the bare minimum ounces per square yard or grams per square meter is just a chosen standard for textiles uh, to do one comparison um, with fabrics. If you're ever writing this out, uh, one thing that I always forget because I'm constantly typing these things is just remembering the superscript. So we don't put it in our product description because not every, the superscript can be difficult with the the code that you're working with on a website or on a uh, like a text-based server or something, but um, the superscript is that little number two that like sits high above the thing that says it's ounces per square yard versus just putting yard or YD slash two. The correct way would be to have the superscript. So always add that if you're looking to be as clear as possible, but it's obviously it's not crucial because we don't even put in our titles. Well, yeah, it's also can be written just like anything in lots of yeah. different ways. Some people put, they might write out square yard, like a slash and then, square yard or SQ period, YD period, which are the abbreviations, or what I often use uh, most of the time is OSY, ounces square yeah, yard. That That's sense. what you would see the most in if you're communicating with somebody else. I don't know why people listening to this would just be communicating with a like a mill or something like that, but if you found yourself doing that, <laughs> you that's probably how it would that's be. how you don't want to do it. Yeah. So um, that actually... I was, didn't realize this was the next term, so I'm, if you don't mind, I'll just segue right on through. The number two. So number two is denier or denier or denier. denier. I don't know. Google probably tells you to pronounce it some way. I normally say denier. So that's how I'm going to say it here. Um, so denier is, the measure, is a measurement of fiber weight at the most basic thing. Uh, the technical is... Uh, weight in grams of nine kilometers of a fiber. But you don't really need to know that to understand the functionality of what denier gives you. So what it gives you, just like ounces per square yard or GSM, is another way to understand the characteristics of your fabric, right? So if we're talking about it being a measure of density of fiber, then you understand that as that number goes up, so if you see a 70 denier fabric versus a 500 denier fabric, you can typically assume that the 500 denier fabric is going to be more burly, right? It, it's using thicker, heavier yarns, and most likely it's going to be more durable. So if is it correct in saying that like our MEM10, which is a 10D fabric, is 10 grams for 5.6 miles worth of that fiber? That's nine kilometers in miles. Of the individual fiber, yes. Gotcha. But like I said, like you don't actually have to know the real. You're not going to be doing that calculation, yeah. <laughs> so it's more important, I think, for someone who's trying to pick the right fabric or design a product to understand at its basis how to use denier and understand it uh, in the most functional way. Because I'm no scientist, I'll tell you that right now. Uh, I dropped out of college, <laughs> not because of science, but just saying. Um, yeah, so for instance, you're most most commonly going to see first of, first of all, denier is abbreviated with just a big D, as you'll often see it like seventy D, 
210D. That's how we refer to it on our website. That's how you'll see it if you were to Google fabrics. Sometimes lowercase d as well. Like it's not always, it's a very inconsistent naming scheme, I guess you could say. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be capital. But uh, what I was saying earlier about ounces per square yard and how uh, that translates for you to get a clearer picture is if you know the ounces per square yard, then you can most likely guess in a ballpark figure what the denier is going to be and vice versa. For instance, 70D is very, very popular to see because that translates to around 1.9 ounce per square yard. So when you see 1.9 ounce ripstop, which is incredibly popular, you can always assume it's going to be 70D. 70D. So when someone's talking to me and they're like, hey, do you have this 30D fabric? I know that's around 1.1 ounces per square yard. So that's how those are interchanged when we have people that reach out to us and want to do a custom fabric, but maybe they're not as textile literate. Uh, Knowing those terms uh, can help us to understand how we can get them what they need. If anyone knows the story behind how they got this measurement of like nine kilometers of a specific fiber, I'd be really interested. Like somebody back in the day, like in the 1600s, just walking around the town walls, like with a single fiber trying to stretch it out. It's like, what? It's a very obscure number. They were probably banished from the parish, if I had to guess. <laughs> it's just a weird way to measure that. Oh, there's Johnny. He's just, he's always with his fibers, just walking around. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, for us, um, like Carter's mentioned, we have a variety from like uh, 0.5670 all the way up to like 1680D ballistic. There, a lot of people associate, which isn't wrong. I just want to talk about it a bit more, associate the denier of a fabric with like directly to the durability and technically there's no it's no more durable it's just a thicker fiber so it, it normally does relate to durability but like d doesn't mean durability i guess it's not like 1680 durability it's 1680 denier d does not mean durability but there's certainly a direct correlation sure. uh, especially within the same fiber right? yeah once you change fibers then things change because those fibers that we're going to talk about in a minute like nylon and polyester have different inherent characteristics of the plastic or polymer. Sorry, we're not supposed to say plastic, it's just plastic. Um, so little teaser to number three, it's important to know about nylon and polyester. As you can see, we're working our way through. So uh, let's start with nylon. What are some characteristics or what's like the definition of nylon, if you would call it that? Yeah, so both of these are synthetic fibers. Um, interestingly enough, uh, not a lot of people know this, so I'm going to throw out a little fact for you. Uh, nylon is not the actual name of nylon. Uh, nylon is a trade name established by DuPont, just like almost every single other textile thing ever, uh, for the polymer known as polyamide. So they actually sound polyester and polyamide actually sound a lot more similar because they are very similar. Um, it's kind of like the old Q-tip Kleenex thing that we've just come around to calling nylon, nylon. Uh, so yeah, cool fact. Anyways, nylon is probably is extremely, extremely common. You've heard it a thousand times. It's used in every type of application you can imagine. Pros? Well, I'll get to the pros in a second. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to talk about polyester first, just because it's easier to compare and contrast them. Makes sense. Um, Polyester is also extremely, extremely popular. It's used in everything from tablecloths to, I don't know, earphone <laughs> covers or something. I don't know. It's used for a lot of stuff. 
most people know what nylon and polyester are. They just might not understand how that relates to using those fibers and textiles, which is what we're here to talk about. So uh, for the basics, again, um, as we've talked about on the podcast before, how you coat a fabric or finish it or treat it, uh, or even how tightly you weave it and like thread count and things like that can drastically or at least somewhat change the characteristics of the end textile. So don't take this as this is going to always be true. But basically, we understand nylon in general to be a stronger fiber, meaning abrasion resistance, tear strength, and tensile strength are typically going to be fiber for fiber? <laughs> Higher. Higher. <laughs> Uh, when you're using uh, especially the same fiber. So if you were to take a 20D polyester, just basic run of the mill, and a 20D nylon fabric with similar weave construction and finishing, you can usually assume that the nylon will test higher. doesn't mean that the polyester is weak, um, and it has some other characteristics that might, in certain applications, outshine the nylon, but that's the basis. Uh, the next is that nylon is hydrophilic, meaning that it, well, I think it technically means that it really loves some water, but <laughs> that just means that it absorbs water. So you might notice this. It's a bit more spongy than polyester. Yes, you might notice this. Um, again, these are fiber characteristics that can translate into fabric characteristics, just to say that again. You might notice that your nylon rainfly absorbs some more water and gets a little bit heavier and saggier. Uh, as compared to polyester, which is hydrophobic, which means it's real scared of the water. <laughs> if you, it runs when it sees the H2O. <laughs> if you uh, listen to our Dan Durson episode, then we talk about this a lot because in, in the shelter business or shelter game uh, with shelters, still nylon was big for a while, but still poly was a pretty big revelation because you didn't wake up in the morning after a light rainstorm and have everything be like two inches stretched out. Yeah, silk nylon is still a phenomenal fabric. It has many applications. It was revolutionary when it first started to assimilate in the game. I would most big box stores and still really high quality tents still use that. So it's not like nylon's terrible. Um, but silk poly is definitely starting to garner attention from cottage companies for sure, but into larger ones as well because of some of those properties. Uh, the final property again, which can vary by coatings and other things, it, um, is UV resistance. So typically polyester fiber uh, has a higher UV resistance. Um, this doesn't mean either one of them are going to just fall apart in the sun after, like polyester is going to last forever and nylon's going to catch on fire, or whatever UV does, <laughs> give it a third leg, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but these are all things that if you understand, you can make a better choice for whatever project you're making. Makes sense. Uh, so another big time fiber that we're seeing in materials and fabrics these days is uh, the big UHMWPE or Ultra PE, or some brands have called it Spectra. Some brands have called it other things. I don't remember all of them now, but UHMWPE. Dyneema. Uh, that's the one I'm missing. Dyneema UHMWPE, which stands for Ultra High Molecular Weight Polyethylene. Jameson did too. Um, so UHMWPE, uh, if you're listening this deep into our podcast, you've almost assuredly, uh, heard this by now a lot of times over the past five years, uh, definitely, definitely five, possibly longer. Um, this has kind of blown up and has been 
uh, pretty much accepted in the textile market and is now versions of UHMWPE fiber, whether it's in rope or backpacks or shelters have now made their way into like REI, right? You see big Agnes using a uh, Dyneema composite fabric, which uses UHMWPE yarn. So it's blowing up. So all that to say, you've probably heard of this. Uh, so this is another synthetic fiber. Uh, and it is much, much stronger than the nylon or the polyester that we talked about earlier. It also has some downfalls, um, but it is extremely popular because of using, using this fiber in different ways can give you some really awesome characteristics to your textile or your finished product. Um, because it's so strong and it's also so light, you can use these fibers to weave into fabrics or to laminate. And it gives you like insanely high tensile strength or tear strength and things like that. So that's why they are so popular. You're, yeah, so you mentioned the DCF products, but also the Ultra uh, line, also our Venom line are all uh, fabrics woven with uh, branded or non-branded UHMWPE fibers. Now, you mentioned the plus side of it's incredibly waterproof or water resistant, uh, ridiculously high tear and tensile strength. What about maybe some of the negatives that people see with the UHMWPE fibers. Sure. One thing to clarify again is that these are fiber characteristics. So like, I think a lot of people, like for instance, uh, the most popular UHMWPE textile is Dyneema composite fabric, right? Which is these Dyneema or UHMWPE fibers that are laid down and then laminated with PET or plastic. What makes the fabric waterproof is not because Dyneema fibers don't absorb water. But I think a lot of people get confused by that. So just because you had a fabric that you wove in some Dyneema yarns doesn't mean that it's like going to keep the rain off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, fiber characteristics. But if we're talking about some of the downfalls, I would definitely say price is one. Because this is a high-tech fiber, it's harder to make. Uh, the margin for error is much higher. And therefore, it is more expensive. It is also diff it can be difficult to work with because it's slippery. So weaving the material uh, can be more difficult. It's more resistant or it's more susceptible to heat. So it has a lower melting point than nylon or polyester. Because of that, certain finishes can be harder to complete. So yeah, the heat element can be difficult because, of, like I said, the finishing process might require heat and that makes things difficult. Finally, it's also just harder to dye. It's harder to add color to. This is why you don't see it in a ton of different colors and why, for instance, in our melange fabric, which is like, a, I can't remember the exact blend, but it's a certain percentage of Dyneema and the rest is a regular synthetic fiber. You see that it comes out looking like a heathered look where basically half of it is has color and half of it doesn't, which looks really cool. But the reason for that is because those Dyneema fibers don't take the dye sub process very well. Uh, and finally, it's also, I've mentioned that it's slippery, but it's also harder to coat. So putting a PU coating on 100% uh, woven UHMWPE or something like that, it can be much more difficult because of the way it reacts to chemicals. So a couple misconceptions or just common mistakes that people make with uh, UHMWPE fabrics is understanding the difference between the material and the fabrics and the fiber. And you've alluded to this quite a bit, but one thing that you'll see on our website is there are dynamic composite fabrics, which are the specific fabric or material uh, from 
Dyneema, but there's also fabrics woven with Dyneema. So there are fabrics that are woven with a UHMWPE fiber within them. We've released some special like limited edition fabrics in the past that are 100% UHMWPE fabrics or, or woven laminates, whatever. Um, we've done some of both, but you'll want to notice that. One of the fabrics that we currently offer is the 3.9 Venom UHMWPE TPU. That's a pack fabric and the Venom for us. Um, that's our UHMWPE line. We titled it in there just so people know, uh, but that's something that you'll see and that you might want to be aware of if you're referring to a lot of fabrics. Yeah, basically, uh, people shorthand Dyneema composite fabrics and just say Dyneema, but it can be misleading, especially when you're getting into the weeds of things um, because... Uh, like a, the reason I've emphasized that we're talking about fiber characteristics uh, and how they relate to fabric characteristics is that they're not the same. So people often get confused and are talking about Dyneema, but they're referring to Dyneema composite fabrics and those attributes, which are different than just basically like a yarn, right? Yeah. So earlier I alluded to branded versus non-branded UHMWPEs, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Dyneema and Spectra are examples of branded UHMWPE fibers. It's kind of going back to like the Kleenex and the other like branded names that we normally use just to, uh, we normally use to just refer to a general category of like tissues. Um, but there are a lot of non-branded UHMWPE fibers as well, just because a UHMWPE doesn't mean that it has a name brand on it. It's just a way to make a fiber. Yeah, so it is a fiber, right? And what these branded yarns are doing, or these this branded fiber typically has a patented specific chemical makeup or creation process that uh, in the eyes of the brand, uh, and for the most part is true, gives it a an overall better testing performance at the fiber level than a generic UHMWPE. It doesn't mean that if you got UHMWPE fabric that wasn't called Dyneema, that they're going to be drastically different. In fact, you probably wouldn't notice the difference because, again, you're not just holding the fibers in your hands and doing tests on them. We're using them for like backpacking, and they've now been turned into a fabric that has different characteristics than just the fiber, which is, again, why it's important to differentiate. So technically... I think Dyneema uh, says that their fiber is about 10% better performing than a generic UHMWPE. Again, Dyneema is really cool because they've been, they basically invented that fiber and they've been making it for forever. So you know that you can expect really good quality. If you were someone who was out on your own trying to source a UHMWPE fabric, you could run into issues with quality. Um, however, if you're someone like us and we work a lot with materials, our Venom line, although it's not Dyneema, we are, you know, we've done all the testing we have. We know where the fiber comes from and all that type of stuff to be able to say like, hey, this has the characteristics that we want. So that's one thing I was going to ask is like, is it really at the company level where you would start to notice a difference between a branded and non-branded where like if you listen to our episode with the people from Dyneema, they talk about the consistency and the production and the pedigree of their company and things like that that like kind of makes their fiber. Is that where you'd see it? Cause like you said, it's not like a, a generic, you're not going to see that in a backpack level, like a UHMWP fiber. It's not going to sell that if it's going to rip to shreds, like you're carrying sil poly on your back as a backpack or something. Sure. Uh, I mean, I really think it depends on a lot of things, right? For instance, one thing that Dyneema does a lot of work with is like PPE and cut protection, right? That's a spot where, you know, someone's hand, when someone's hand is on the line, uh, 
you typically want to go with the brand that you know has been around for a long time and has uh, extremely tight tolerances and things like that. So I think that's where you Mm -hmm. see it more. Uh, Again, also Dyneema makes Dyneema composite fabrics, which is a phenomenal fabric and no one else can make it. You know, it's their, it's their own IP. So like you couldn't have UHMWPE Dyneema composite fabric. So that's another reason why it's so, they're so important is because they also have this technology to make this amazing textile. Yeah. I think we've labored on about UHMWPE enough. Uh, Let's move on to number five, ripstop. This is one that maybe has been the hardest for me to get my, get a handle on since I came here. Um, and I still kind of, you kind of shook my world the other day when we released the airwave stretch, uh, because I thought the ripstop had to do with something that it totally wasn't. So let's talk about the definition of what a ripstop is. Yes. Yeah, so at the very, just a base level, definition. rudimentary level, ripstop is a style of weave, right? This weave is typically, uh, you, you see this and it's characterized by this box looking grid that looks like it's standing out from the top of the fabric. Um, so let me stop you right now, just because I think this is important. So when I think of a box style grid, one of the fabrics that comes to mind that I think everyone listening will know is 210D HDPE or fabric like that, like Patagonia's Black Hole Duffels. They have a TPU coating in theirs, but it's one of the most notifiable or noticeable fabrics because it has just a very like contrasted grid would like 210 HDPE grid stop. Would that be considered a ripstop weave or is that totally different? Well, that fabric actually has multiple weaves in it, right? It has, this is where I wanted us to go. So perfect. (laughs) Well, you can see that it has like a diamond grid on it Mm -hmm. as well, which is technically not ripstop. I think that's called a Dobby weave. Um, But I'll explain ripstop a little more and then I can go back to that. But basically what a ripstop is, is it's a reinforced grid area that's done one of two ways um either it's the same fiber that the fabric is used with or that the fabric is made with and then um it's basically woven to be thicker like wrapped around multiple times or it's a thicker denier yarn altogether for instance like our hybrid series 1.2 mountain 1.7 mountain all of those have a base yarn of uh, let's say like 1.7 mountain is a 40 denier base yarn. And then the ripstop portion is 120 hmm. D. I hadn't thought about that fabric in a while, but that feels like a really, uh, not to pick on your example. It's a good example. That feels like a really dramatic shift though. With like, what does that do for that? That's one example of like a, a much more pronounced ripstop. Um, but it doesn't always have to be that different, right? Sometimes it's just the exact same denier fiber used but it's just like can it can it be the same uh same denier fiber used to create the ripstop or does it have to be different yeah it can so like uh, there are multiple ways for that to be done some of that's up to speculation i guess makes sense um because there are so many different terms uh so i I, basically if you see a box on a fabric it's ripstop i think the most common misconception so ripstop can a ripstop grid for the most part for me is mostly aesthetic this is where i got tripped up with the airwave is that i thought it was like a reinforcement thing so it can be right Right, like especially when you're using that higher than your uh like hybridized yarn that i was talking about you have a much thicker line in there Mm -hmm. it's going to give you some characteristics right but a fabric's overall performance is related to the fiber quality and 
the thread count and the finishes. Uh, I mean, they have coatings for tear strength that you can add on to make the fabric less likely to tear. So there are lots of things that play in. Uh, so what I mean is that a lot of people hear rip stop. Obviously, it sounds like, hey, that's going to stop a rip. It's not going to tear. That's not true. Right? Like a high quality silicone coating on a material is going to do much more for the tear strength than if you put a ripstop grid in it. It doesn't mean that it's useless. Uh, it just means that I think that people often overstate what it does for a material. Um, it it's looks really cool aesthetically. Again, I'm not saying that it's pointless at all. I like the way it looks and it does, it does add some things uh, depending on how you want to use it. Uh, one of those things is it can also help reduce bias stretch or stretch in general, which can be really important an application like a hammock or a piece of clothing or something like that. A lot of people think about it in kind of the antiquated way of ripstop, which is like, I remember when my uncle was in the military, I was I don't know, like five years old or something. And he showed me like his new, like ripstop uniform that the military released in 2003 or something where, you know, like where it did like stop the rip, like, yeah, if it cuts, like it doesn't keep ripping open, you know? And like, that's what people think of ripstop always where it doesn't have to be that anymore. <laughs> like it can be a lot of different aspects. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's always been that way. It's right. You just you just have a, a weave style that's called ripstop. It's a that's a very like yeah. in your face way to put it. And in no way, again, I'm somewhat of an expert, but I definitely wouldn't say I'm. You know, I'm not a textile chemist or engineer. Uh, it's just in my experience in working with a lot of different fabrics and doing a lot of different testing. I think that uh, ripstop is definitely valuable, and I prefer to have it because it it does it can increase like tear strength and other things, but it doesn't like completely change the fabric and make it something that's invincible. There are so many more characteristics that go into developing a material that's really strong or really light or mm -hmm. all of those or water resistant. There are a lot of things. So ripstop's really important. I mean, it's in the name of our company, so we like it. Um, but yeah, if you see that, uh, for instance, if you just went on, I don't know, AliExpress and you saw like ripstop nylon, that is not the same fabric that you're buying if you buy something from us, right? Because there are so many more, just putting a ripstop grid in something doesn't just automatically make it invincible, right? And that, that's what I'm trying to get across. So that's that ripstop. Sense. It's really cool, but you can still cut it with a knife. So be careful. One thing to keep in mind for all of these is that we're going to, we're going to talk about like the surface level of each of these definitions um, for each one of these, there are levels and levels that we could go into that are way deeper uh, than you probably need to know or, or want to know right now. Um, so keep that in mind, take these with a grain of salt. We're going to give you the best definition we can, but there's always a lot more that we could say or could do. So if you're thinking about a comment right now, feel, feel free to drop it, but also we are bottling some of this so we don't make this like a four hour long episode or bore you totally to death. Yeah. I, I'm not trying to give the most scientific answers. I just, you know, the goal for you listening is that you walk away with this, knowing how to better understand what fabric to pick for your project. Before I say number six, I do need to, <laughs> I want to tell this funny story. So as I was getting ready for this episode, I walked around the office uh, and it was kind of a note that we had here is that we wanted to ask some of the people, maybe the newer people in the office, what they thought some of these terms meant to get a better, uh, just kind of laugh and see what people said. Uh, so I asked a couple of people what they thought taffeta meant. And I'm not going to put names out there because everyone that works here is great and I don't want to make fun of them. Uh, but I asked somebody what taffeta meant. And he said, hmm, I think that's probably, that sounds very Eastern to me. Like, I think it's, I think it's of Eastern descent. 
<laughs> it was just funny because I've only ever known taffeta in the in reference of like our mem ten taffeta, which already gave me some reference, and he knows it that same way as well. But uh, yeah, it, it was kind of funny. Some somebody else said, "Isn't taffeta like?" the width of the fabric folded three times or something. I think they were just making it up at that point. But uh, yeah, what's the actual definition of what taffeta means? Uh, so taffeta is a, another weaving style slash fabric style. Um, it says here in my notes that it comes from a Persian word, meaning like twisted woven or silk. Uh, and that's what you can mostly relate it to. So taffeta is a weaving style that's a plain weave that uses um, a single yarn. Uh, it normally has a really tight weave and it can appear shiny. So if you think about our um, membrane tin, you can start to imagine, although that has a calendar on it, but basically it means a tightly woven plain weave. And it, you often see taffeta used at least in our area of business to make things either more downproof or to make them feel better. So by weaving it that way, it's more comfortable to your skin. It can feel more silky. So that's basically it. Why might a taffeta fabric be more downproof? Like if it's just a single yarn, I don't fully get the connection between like why that might make that more more comfortable or, or downproof for like uh, those applications. Yeah, uh, I probably shouldn't have said the single yarn thing because I think it can be confusing. Like again, I want to talk about these things in the most approachable way. So let's just say that uh, it's very tightly woven to make it, you know, silky and what that tight weave does and usually a really high thread count because it typically uses smaller denier yarn. So if you think about a smaller yarn, you need to have more of it to like fill up the width of the fabric. Mm. Um, what that tight weave does is obviously makes the spaces in between the yarns smaller so that when you go to uh, calendar the fabric, which I think we'll talk about, or you go to try to make it downproof or waterproof or whatever, you have a smaller space in between. So it's easier to do that. Whereas imagine if you had a 500 D fiber, let's remember that that's like density thickness. Just think of it that way. You need a lot less of those whenever you weave them together. Uh, so the thread count is lower, but there's also going to be like bigger spaces in between basically. Interesting. Uh, the fabrics that are related to taffeta for us are 0.66 MEM10 taffeta and then 0.9 membrane 10 poly taffeta, uh, both highly rated quilt fabrics and jacket liners and, and things like that, which makes sense for like the, the that silky, comfortable feeling. All right. So we've talked about the nylon and poly and the UHMWPE, which kind of tees up our, our next term or terms that you need to know, which is the difference between uh, a woven and a laminate. If you go on our site now, you'll notice that if you click on laminates, then you're going to see Dyneema Composite Fabrics, uh, X-Pack, like there's some X-Pack variants that come up there. Um, and then wovens will normally have, like the top of this are going to be like Hyper-D, Airwave, things like that, which kind of gives you an idea of what that is. So to fill in the blank, Carter, what's the difference between a woven and a laminate? Uh, yeah, this one's pretty easy. I think a lot of people can probably figure this one out or know about it. So woven fabrics are woven together, right? They're basically a bunch of spools of yarn that get woven together. Like you would weave like, I don't know, a basket or whatever people weave hair. Fabrics. Um, yeah. So you're taking those yarns, you're putting them on top of each other and it creates a fabric. Um, the characteristics of woven fabrics because they are put together like that or that they normally have some stretch on the diagonal. Um, they're flexible. 
They're only going to be as waterproof as the coatings that you apply. Lots of things like that. You can typically get a really high tear strength because of something called thread slippage, which is the, uh, I almost say aptitude, but that the likelihood or the ability for threads to slip over each other before they tear. You can imagine the difference because a laminate is something typically that are layers that have been put together somehow, usually with adhesive. Uh, just like if you think about laminating uh, your school ID or whatever, or laminating a, a poster or a piece of paper, right? You're taking plastic and basically sandwiching it in there to protect the whatever your your business card or whatever. So in a woven, it's held together by each weave kind of keeping each other in check and then like getting woven to be a big thing. With the laminates, the adhesive that's keeping all those layers together. Eek. Yes, kind of. Um, I know there's a lot of... Uh, yeah, there's a it's well, yes and but <laughs> well one big difference that I want to put out there is that most laminate fabrics are woven fabrics that are glued together. So, so like X-Pack has a what we call the face, right? The front of the fabric is normally a like let's take VX21, the super popular most popular X-Pack variant, right? That has a 210D face on it that's glued to a PET film. That's also glued to a 50D taffeta backing. So you're getting some of the, the reason why you do that to create those layers is that by gluing them together, uh, you can get the characteristics of different wovens all in one. Uh, another example of this would be, uh, let's look at uh, Dyneema composite fabrics. So let's look at um, 1.43 ounce, which is a pretty burly, like super tough laminate, but it still just has plastic on the outside or PET on the outside, Dyneema fiber on the middle, and then plastic on the other side, right? So that plastic layer, even though it's thicker than some of the other variants, is not going to be as abrasion resistant as a woven material. So what they do is, for the 292 variant, is they take a 50D woven, and then they glue that to 1.43. And what that does is it gives you the abrasion resistance of that woven polyester, I believe it is. Um, and then you also get the benefits of the laminate, which because it's laminated with PET, it's fully waterproof. And the laminate also because it's PET or plastic means that you can tape it. So you can use different tapes for seam sealing and other things like that that wouldn't stick to... Think about if you had scotch tape and you tried to stick that to your running shirt versus if you stuck that to... A whiteboard. Exactly. So the that that process of connecting things is kind of where historically things have been more difficult in the fabric world. For example, on on laminate fabrics, it has been it can be difficult to merge all those layers together to get that woven. Like something that you hear a lot about in the in the laminate fabric world is is delamination, right? That's when a fabric gets used enough where the layers start to peel away from each other. It's obviously not great for performance. So for laminates, it can be difficult to get all those layers to merge and to kind of to, to marry so that they stay together and they last for a long time. But for wovens, that might look like uh, you can weave that fabric together, but then it's getting a good coating and it's going to last for a while, right? Those are those are kind of the pros and cons of, or not the pros and cons, but those are some of the issues that we face when we're looking at curing one of these or, or designing one of these textiles. Is that right? Yeah, that's definitely true. Obviously, laminates also, because they're glued together normally with some sort of plastic, uh, there's no stretch, right? So it's phenomenal for things where you don't want bias stretch, like in a shelter or something like that. 
not as great for like, let's say boxers, right? Probably not getting that range of motion down there. So another thing is that when things are laminated, even though, even if you're laminating with like a woven fabric on top, you now, whenever you're sewing, you're putting little needle holes in there that don't go back, right? With a, with a woven material, especially uncoated, if you put the needle in, you have to seam rip. Normally, you can just kind of rub the fabric and the weave will kind of go back to where it was, right? Yeah. So that's a big difference in uh, application, at least for when you have a laminate and you're making a backpack. Uh, you want to design it in a way to limit the amount of holes and then usually figure out a way to construct your bag in a way that you can either tape it to kind of keep the holes closed up or you could bind it to put something in between so that the thread holds better. Um, there's just some different characteristics for uh, laminated things. And I think they're pretty straightforward if you just think about, hey, I'm taking this fabric that has these characteristics and I'm gluing it to a plastic. So before we go into number eight, I forgot to tell you some of the funny definitions that people came up with for UHMWPE, but also there's a good one for the next the next term, which is why it came to mind. I said, hey, like, what do you think UHMWPE stands for? And one of the options that somebody came up with was ultra high magnetic plastic entity or something with, <laughs> with plastic entity. <laughs> um, ask your friends if they don't know what that means because you'll get some good answers. But the next, def- uh, next term is DWR. One of the guesses for what DWR stood for was down with the resistance, which is pretty solid. Um, anyway, DWR, durable water repellent. What is it, Carter? Uh, so yeah, DWR, you see it all the time. It's a finishing technique that's either spray on or wash in, uh, meaning that they either spray this coating onto the material or they wash it in, meaning they like it's in like basically like a detergent and then the fabric goes in there and then sure. it gets added on. So DWR is a finishing technique that allows for the fabric to be more hydrophobic. So you coat it with this treatment and it will resist water. Uh, It doesn't mean that it's waterproof, right? So almost all of our fabrics have a DWR treatment done to them, like all of our breathable fabrics as well, which means that... So if you make a tarp out of 1.6 Hyper-D... DWR and 2.2 hex 70 DWR because uh, you're told that all of our fabrics have a DWR and you don't know what that means. It doesn't resist any rain. Yeah. It, Asking so for a friend. It can resist some rain, right? Sure. Like uh, I hike with an umbrella and then a wind shirt that has a DWR coating and it's enough to keep a light drizzle off and I can wipe it off. It doesn't immediately soak through the fabric. If you were to like get a little bit of water on something or whatever it might help prevent it from soaking in all the way if you can get the water off in time or it will stain less but yes i would say by far the most common misconception is that dwr makes the fabric waterproof it does not there are different levels of dwr it used to be in the past that's so the way that they it's uh denoted is with a number system so you typically see three of them, which are C8, C6, and C0. And these are just the levels of like the chemical, the labeling of the chemical composition that is used to create the DWR. Um, C8 is illegal. So uh, it, the higher the number means typically the stronger the DWR, like the more that it will resist water for the longest period of time. It's like a C8 DWR. Is that like the same as a PU coating in like water resistance or is it like still no, just as effective, it, just way more chemicals? 
way more chemicals and definitely stronger in DWR, but it's been illegal for a long time. So then due to restrictions, good ones, environmental restrictions, C6 DWR became really popular. That's We still use that on some of our materials. Lots of big box stores use that as well. It's much better for the environment and it's still a viable treatment that will stay on for quite a while. You also can have different thicknesses and chemical makeups of the coatings so that they resist washes for longer. For the most part, you're not like washing your hammock, so it's going to last a really long time. But for certain clothing, you might have to reapply that eventually, um, which is a product that we sell and you can buy in lots of places is like a DWR respray. You're going to have to do that a lot more on a lower quality treatment for sure. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard of many people needing to use that for our stuff. Uh, and the last one is C0, which has become a lot more popular uh, because it's PFC free. So it's the most uh, environmentally environmentally friendly uh, coating. It's the one that we are trying to transition. All Every new fabric will have it. Uh, for the most part, where we can, which is going to be like 95%. And as we re-up on our existing fabrics that we're keeping around, we're switching that to the more environmentally friendly one, which is really awesome. And I'm glad that we're doing that. Uh, It is a little bit not as strong as the C6, but it still performs really well. Um, And I think it does what it needs to do while being a lot better for the environment and for you know the peoples all right so number nine uh pu and silicone pu stands for polyurethane uh which normally means like a a heavier duty water repellent but what does that mean versus like the other water repellent agents that you've talked about yeah so polyurethane and silicone coatings are the two most popular ways uh, for outdoor textiles to make things waterproof Uh, i talked about laminates earlier that's a technology that's newer People are still experimenting with different ways to do that, but the two most cost-effective and common and time-proven are polyurethane (laughs) and silicone. Uh, I'll talk about polyurethane. I'm going to go ahead and refer to that as PU from now on because I don't want to say polyurethane every time. So PU is still the most common waterproofing coating. The reasons for this are, A, it's lower cost to do a PU coating. Uh, than it is to do silicone or lamination. You can do multiple passes of polyurethane, uh, meaning like you could do a first coating and a second coating and a third coating and get a really thick coating of it on there, which means that you'll have a really high waterproof rating, hydrostatic head. For our applications, of course, I think once you get over about 4,000 millimeters, which just means, uh, well, I'll explain hydrostatic head very quickly. Basically, that's just another one of those standards that you want to use so you can determine how long something will resist uh, wetting through. So if you imagine like a test tube filled with water uh, and then the fabric at the bottom of it, like uh, with a bucket under it or something, let's imagine it's taped on. The millimeter rating is how much water you could put in that test tube uh, until there was enough pressure for the water to seep through. So most of our fabrics have around 2,000 to 3,000 millimeters of hydrostatic head, which is plenty. I mean, that's three for years. our applications, that's <laughs> waterproof. Uh, well, it has more to do with the pressure, right. right? Because as you fill up, imagine if you have a tube that's like... It's a three-meter tall column of water. Correct. So um, hydrostatic head is whenever you... It's just, again, a rating. So the higher the number in millimeters basically translates into quote-unquote, more waterproof. 
again, once you're above about 1500, you're pretty much good to go. So what do companies mean when they're like 20,000 hydrostatic head? Uh, I mean, so laminates are like that, right? Because the waterproofing is not based on a coating. It's based on the fact that it's literally glued to plastic and you're just not going to get water through it's plastic. It's going to blast through it eventually. So it's, it, again, it's indicative to show that like, hey, this is never going to wet out. Like water is never going to get through this. But like I said, in actual, those are test, testing is really important because it allows you to compare and contrast mm -hmm. fabrics and identify certain things that you might want more than others but for like actual real life applications for a backpack. Technically you're going to be totally fine with something yeah. with a 1500 millimeter. Yeah. Uh, it's better to be higher because I think it lowers the margin that something happens. But yeah, anyway, so you can get a really high waterproof rating using PU because you can do all those multiple passes. Um, you can also, PU can also mix with things. For instance, uh, you'll commonly see it uh, used to be mixed with a fire retardant coating. Because silicone is chemically inert, you can't, like, it's difficult to mix it with a bunch of other stuff. Uh, so those are the pros, right? Uh, the cons of PU coatings are that it does uh, decrease the tear strength because of, like, the chemical makeup. Um, doesn't mean that it's just going to rip in half, right? The most popular packed fabrics for, like, I don't know, however long the world has been around, <laughs> 40 years or whatever has been PU coated backpacks. There's still plenty of those that are in service today. Uh, it's also less durable than silicone. It can wear out over time because it's not chemically inert. It can also be reactive to other things. It also adds quite a bit of weight because to get that higher hydrostatic head rating, you have to add multiple passes of the coating and that adds material onto your base fabric weight. So silicone, it's a little bit different. Uh, instead of like just passing a coating on it, normally it's... Uh, you see it different ways, silicone coated or silicone impregnated. Uh, just think of it as like the entire fabric is being coated instead of just one side like PU normally is. Uh, silicone is lighter. It actually increases the fabric tear strength, which is really cool. Uh, like I said, it's chemically inert, so uh, it's not going to react to other things. This is why you see silicone on stuff like 1-1 Sil Poly and like shelter fabrics because of the increased tear resistance and the weight versus like PU you don't really see a ton of shelter fabrics that are PU coated. Is that just because of the weight or are there other factors as well? Uh, it's, I think it's because of all the things, right? If you take into account that it's going to make a lighter denier material, uh, keep a light denier material light and also help it be stronger and not be chemically inert mm -hmm. uh, or, and be chemically inert and not reactive to chemicals. Uh, and it's much more durable or at least more durable than they PU coated. The they all kind of play into yeah. that. Gotcha. Uh, the cons of silicone are that higher price. It's also much harder to seam seal. So that's something I didn't talk about with PU, but PU can be easily seam sealed, which is why it's used a lot uh, with different tapes, like hot tapes and stuff like that. Also some like DCF repair tape, Dyneema composite fabric repair tape actually does stick to polyurethane coatings. Not as well, of course, as what it's intended to be used for, but you can use it for PU and it will work. Uh, ZPAX has been doing that for years. And then there's also, not to get really confusing, but there's like TPU where you can do like thermally bonding, thermal bonded seams and stuff like that as well. With like silicone, there's not that option to do like a thermal bonding, right? Correct. Yes. There are, uh, yeah, that gets a little bit deeper, but sure. So how do you seam seal silicone then? Uh, so the most popular way is you, you use Silnet seam sealer. Uh, there seam are. Grip. 
you can't use seam grip. Seam grip is only for polyurethane. Uh, Silnet is specifically designed to work with silicone. That's what most people are going to use. You're also going to want to use certain seams uh, or binding techniques that might make it harder for water to get in. Also check out that podcast on the seams that you need to know. Silicone, also another con, if you will, is that you can't get as high of a hydrostatic head rating. Uh, However, like I said earlier, at a certain point, like it doesn't really matter. Like you don't need 8,000 millimeters of hydrostatic head for the most part. It's not going to be a thing like a a really strong, nice 3000 millimeter coating uh, with silicone is going to last you probably for the end of your days in camping and it's never going to wet out. So, uh, yeah, so those are the basics. One of them is cheaper to use, easier to seam seal uh, and can get more waterproofness, but it's uh, not as durable and it can affect the fabric a little bit negatively. Uh, and that's PU. And for silicone, you've got, it basically improves the fabric testing, uh, but it's more expensive and it's harder to sew and harder to seam seal. The number 10 term on our list here in the last one of the episode is calendared and uncalendared. In my book, this means anytime that Jason comes to talk with us, it's not on the schedule, is uncalendared. But what does it mean for fabrics? Uh, yeah, so... The way that we talk about calendared uh, can be a little confusing because uh, we also have in our outdoor print world, we have some heat calendars that allow you to do dye sublimation printing. That's not what we're talking about today. So let's like start with like the very definition and we can talk about like what that means for a fabric. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get there. Don't worry. I just wanted to go ahead and say this first. Uh, So the reason that that thing's called a calendar is you basically have, and what calendaring is, is taking these big, heavy, hot rollers and putting the fabric through it. Uh, and as you can imagine, imagine, as a kind of as you can imagine, what that does is it flattens out the fabric and kind of seals it off. Uh, so if you had a fabric, remember how I talked earlier about there being little gaps in between, like your woven material. If you think about if your grandma made like a blanket or whatever, you can see the holes in there. Well, what calendaring, calendaring does is flattens that out. Uh, the reason you might want to do that is to... Uh, you can get a better coating with your silicone or your PU. You can, uh, it, it seals off the weave so that less wind can get in, which is why you often see wind shirts that are calendared. Uh, and it also, because the weave is sealed, it allows you to use down insulation uh, without it escaping because there aren't little holes for the small down to pop out through. That is the absolute worst. I'm just going to say this right now. Like when you're sitting on a couch and they have throw pillows and there's like little prongs sticking out everywhere. Bad work. Yeah. People need to have 950 fill power pillows on their couch. (laughs) They also need downproof pillow liners. (laughs) Well, that is one uh, technically a misconception, right? Is that what typically pokes through on your couch are the feathers. Yeah. But there are no feathers in high fill power down. That's fair. Because it's just the down clusters. Yeah. That makes sense. On pillows, you might have like an 80, 20 down to feather mix sure that makes sense actually yeah not to you know call you out i'm just want people to understand that those ultralight fabrics are not going to prevent a sharp ass feather from just like poking (laughs) through anyways you make the right point which is it, it definitely could be annoying if you made and i've seen this happen if you make a really cool down vest and you don't use a calendar downproof material and then all of a sudden your down starts falling out. And the next thing you yeah. know, you're wearing like 
like when somebody loses a bunch of weight and they have the excess skin, that's what it looks like you're wearing. <laughs> I'm also just uh, just being belligerent. So seals the weave, makes it downproof, windproof. Um, it's when the fabric gets kind of flattened out. So as for like applications, it becomes pretty obvious. Jackets, quilts, things that are close to your body. Um, is there anything else around? Yeah, uh, I was going to say, uh, so the way that you can identify a calendared material is that typically because it's getting like flattened and heated up uh, and pressurized, you will see that one side of the material is typically really shiny. And that's how you can look at a material and be like, okay, I think this is calendared. That being said, you can have different levels of calendaring, right? So you could have something that's slightly calendared, meaning it didn't go through with as much heat or as much as much pressure. And it will be a little more wind resistant than no treatment, but that doesn't mean that it will be downproof completely. So you have to be careful and make sure uh, that you are using a material that's certified as downproof up to the level that you're going to use. So the IDFL, which is basically the down laboratory that does the standards for downproofness, you know, we send our material there uh, to get confirmation that, hey, this is going to prevent uh like 97% of all down from escaping. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's important. So you could have a calendar material that isn't downproof. Do you need a calendar material for synthetic insulation? Uh, it depends on the synthetic insulation, but typically no, because there's no it. synthetic insulation that can mimic the size mm -hmm. of how small down is. Typically you're talking about like climate shield or primal loft, which are continuous filament insulations, meaning they just look like a big sheet. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to have a whole sheet go through your fabric. <laughs> I don't think. So you might want it for the feel, but you don't need it for like efficacy. I would say more so than the feel, you might want it for the wind resistant performance and the heat retention. Also, because the weave is now super tight, it's also usually a little more uh, like the DWR works a little bit better, right? It's a little more water resistant. Uh, so you still might want to use it, but if you really wanted to make a quilt and all you had was an uncalendared fabric, it would work. Gotcha. But probably not as well. All right. Well, Carter, thanks for being the, the part expert on today's podcast. I did my best. Yeah. No, we appreciate it. If I said anything wrong, feel free to, you know, belligerently call me out. Uh, as long as you like and subscribe, you're allowed to do that. Yeah. If you don't like and subscribe, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Yeah. So like we said earlier, if you want to read these definitions that we talked about here today, go check out the blog, which will be linked below or next to or above wherever you're listening or watching this. Uh, check out the Riptionary, our fabric, MYOG, DIY, textiles, glossary. And uh, yeah, until next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.